0: 20 the first wooden boat was made of a tree trunk hollowed out either by fire or axe the wide geographical distribution of the dugout and its survival in isolated regions of highly civilized lands pointed out as one of those necessary and obvious inventions that must have been made independently in various parts of the world the quieter water of rivers and lakes offered the most favorable conditions for the feeble beginnings of navigation but the step from inland to marine navigation was not always taken the egyptians had well-constructed river and marine boats, resigned their maritime commerce to Phoenicians and Greeks, probably, as has been shown, because the silk channels and swamps of the outer Nile Delta held them at arm's length from the sea. Similarly the equatorial lakes of Central Africa have proved fair schools of navigation, where the art has passed the initial stages of development. The Kingdom of Uganda on Victoria Nyanza, at the time of Stanley's visit, Could muster a war fleet of 325 boats. A hundred of them measuring from 50 to 70 feet in length. The largest were manned by a crew of 64 paddlers and could carry as many more fighting men. The long plateau course of the mighty Congo has bred a race of river navigators, issuing from their riparian villages to attack the traveler in big flotillas of canoes ranging from 50 to 85 feet in length. The largest of them driven through the water by 80 paddlers and steered by eight more paddles in the stern but the Congo and lake boats are barred from the coast by a series of cataracts, which mark the passage of the drainage streams down the escarpment of the plateau. There are peoples without boats or rafts of any description. Among this class are the Central Australians, Bushmen, Navigation, Hogtots and Coffers of Arid South Africa, and with few exceptions also the Damaras. Even the coast members of these tribes only wade out into the shallow water on the beach to spearfish. The traveler moving northward from Cape Town through South Africa, across its few scant rivers, goes all the way to Ngani Lake before he sees anything resembling a canoe, and then only a rude dugout. Still greater is the number of people who, though inhabiting well-indented coasts, make little use of contact with the sea. Navigation, unknown to many Australian coast tribes, is limited to miserable rafts of mangrove branches on the northwest seaboard and to imperfect bark canoes with short paddles on the south, only in the north where Malayan influences are apparent does the hollowed tree stem without trigger appear. This retardation is not due to fear, because the South Australian native, like the Fuajan, ventures several miles out to sea in his frail canoe, it is due to that deep-seated inertia which characterizes all primitive races, and for which the remote, outlying location of peninsular South America, Southern Africa and Australia. Before the arrival of the Europeans, afforded no antidote in the form of stimulating contact with other peoples, but the Irish, who started abreast of the other northern Celts in nautical efficiency, who had advantages of proximity to other shores, and in the early centuries of their history sailed to the faraway pharaohs and even to Iceland, peopled southern Scotland by an oversea immigration, made piratical descents upon the English coast, and in turn received colonies of bold Scandinavian mariners, suffered interested development in navigation, and failed to become a seafaring folk. Turning from these regions of merely rudimentary navigation and inquiring where the highest efficiency in the art was obtained before the spread of Mediterranean and European civilization, we find that this distinction belongs to the great island world of the Pacific and to the neighboring lands of the Indian Ocean. Sailing vessels and outrigger boats of native design and construction characterize the whole seawashed area of Indo-Malaysian civilization from Malacca to the outermost isles of the Pacific. The eastern rim of Asia, also, belongs to this wide domain of nautical efficiency, and the coast Indians of southern Alaska and British Columbia may possibly represent an eastern spur of the same, thrown out in very remote times and maintained by the advantageous geographic conditions of that indented, mountainous coast. Adjoining this area on the north is the long-drawn Arctic seaboard of the Eskimo, who unaided aided have developed in their sealskin kayak and by dark sea seagoing craft and surpassed for the purposes of marine hunting and fishing, and who display a fearlessness and endurance born of long and enforced intimacy with the deep, driven by the frozen deserts of his home to seek his food chiefly in the water. The Eskimo, nevertheless, finds his access to the seaboard for long months of winter by the jagged ice pack along the shore. The highest degree of intimacy is developed in that vast island strewn stretch of the Pacific constituting Oceanica, here where a mild climate enables the boatman race to make a companion of the deep, where every landscape is a seascape, where every diplomatic visit or war campaign, every trading journey or search for new cocoa palm plantation means a voyage beyond the narrow confines of the home island, there dwells a race whose splendid chest and arm muscles were developed in the gymnasium of the sea, Who? living on a paltry 515.000 square miles 1.320.300 square kilometers of scattered fragments of land, but roaming over an ocean area of 25 million square miles, are not more at home in their palm wreath pilots than on the encompassing deep, migrations, voluntary and involuntary, make up their history, their trained sense of locality, enabling them to make voyages several hundred miles from home, has been mentioned by various explorers in Polynesia. The Marshall Islanders set down their geographical knowledge in maps which are fairly correct as to bearings but not as to distances. The Relic Islanders of the Scrooge make charts which include islands, routes and currents. Captain Cook was impressed by the geographical knowledge of the people of the South Seas. A native Tahitian made for him a chart containing 74 islands, and gave an account of nearly 60 more information and directions supplied by natives had aided white explorers to many discoveries in these waters quiros visiting the Duff islands in 1606 learned the location of Tycopia, one of the new hebrides group 300 miles away not only the excellent seamanship and the related pelagic fishing of the polynesians bear the stamp of their predominant water environment their mythology their conception of a future state the germs of their astronomical science are all born of the sea Though the people living on the uttermost boundaries of this island world are 6.000 miles or 10.000 kilometers apart, and might be expected to be differentiated by the isolation of their island habitats, nevertheless they all have the same fundamental characteristics of physique, language and culture from Guam to Easter Isle, reflecting in their unity the oneness of the encompassing ocean over which they circulate midway between these semi-aquatic Polynesians and those arctic tribes who are forced out upon the deep, to struggle with it rather than associate with it, we find the inhabitants of the Mediterranean islands and peninsulas, who are favored by the mild climate and the tideless, fogless, stormless character of their sea. While such a body of water invites intimacy, it does not breed a hardy or bold race of navigators, it is a nursery, scarcely a training school. Therefore. Except for the far-famed Dalmatian sailors, who for centuries have faced the storm sweeping down from the Dinaric Alps over the turbulent surface of the Adriatic, Mediterranean seamanship does not command general confidence on the high seas. Therefore it is the German, English and Dutch steamship lines that are today the chief ocean carriers from Italian ports to East Africa, Asia, Australia, North and South America, despite the presence of native lines running from Genoa to Buenos Aires. Montevideo and New York, just as it was the Atlantic states of Europe, and only these and all of these, except Germany, who, trained to venture out into the fogs and storms and in marked paths of the Mare Tenebrosium, participated in the early voyages to the Americas, one after the other they came Norwegians, Spaniards, Portuguese, English, French, Dutch, Swedes and Danes. The anthropogeographical principle is not invalidated by the fact that Spain and England were guided in their initial transatlantic voyages by Italian navigators, like Columbus, Cabot and Amerigo Vespucci. The long maritime experience of Italy and its commercial relations with the Orient, reaching back into ancient times, furnished abundant material for the researches and speculations of such practical theorists, but Italy's location fixed the shores of the Mediterranean as her natural horizon narrowed her vision to its shorter radius. Her obvious interest in the preservation of the old routes to the Orient made her turn a deaf ear to plans aiming to divert European commerce to transatlantic routes. Italy's entrance upon the high seas was, therefore, reluctant and late, retarded by the necessity of outgrowing the old circumscribed outlook of the enclosed basin before adopting the wider vision of the open ocean. Venice and Genoa were crippled not only by the discovery of the sea route to India, but also by their adherence to old Thalassic means and methods of navigation inadequate for the high seas. However, these Mediterranean sea folk are being gradually drawn out of their seclusion, as is proved by the increase of Italian oceanic lines and the recent installation of an Hellenic steamship line between Piraeus and New York. The size of a sea or ocean is a definite factor in its power to attract or repel maritime ventures, especially in the earlier stages of nautical development. A broken, Indented coast means not only a longer and broader zone of contact between the inhabitants and the sea, it means also the breaking up of the adjacent expanse of water into so many alcoves, in which fishermen, trader and colonist may become at home, and prepare for maritime ventures farther afield. The enclosed or marginal sea temps earlier because it can be compassed by coastwise navigation, than by the proximity of its opposite shores and its usual generous equipment with islands. The next step to crosswise navigation is encouraged for the earliest stages of maritime development. Only the smaller articulations of the coast and the inshore fringe of sea inlets count. This is shown in the primitive voyages of the Greeks before they had ventured into the Yukon or west of the forbidding Cape Valia, and in the inside passage navigation of the Indians of Southern Alaska, British Columbia, and Chile, who had never stretched their nautical ventures beyond the outermost rocks of their scurry-walled coast. A second stage is reached when an enclosed basin is at hand to widen the maritime horizon, and when this larger field is exploited in all its commercial, colonial and industrial possibilities, as was done by the Phoenicians and Greeks in the Mediterranean, the Hans towns in the Baltic, the Dutch and English in the North Sea. The third and final stage is reached when the nursery of the inshore estuary or gulf and the elementary school of the enclosed basin are in turn outgrown and the larger maritime spirit moves on to the open ocean for its field of operation. It is a significant fact that the Norse, bred to the water in their fjords and channels behind their protecting, scurry wall, then trained in the stormy basins of the North and Irish seas, were naturally the first people of Europe to cross the Atlantic, because the Atlantic of their shores, narrowing like all oceans and seas toward the North, assumes almost the character of an enclosed basin. The distance from Norway to Greenland is only 1.800 miles, little more than that across the Arabian Sea between Africa and India. We trace, therefore, a certain analogy between the physical subdivisions of the world of water into inlet, marginal sea and ocean, and the anthropogeographical gradations in maritime development. The enclosed or marginal sea seems a necessary condition for the advance beyond coastwise navigation and the much later step to the open ocean continents without them, like Africa, except for its frontage upon the Mediterranean and the Red Sea, had shown no native initiative in maritime enterprise. Africa was further cursed by the mockery of desert coasts along most of her scant thalassic shores. In the Americas, we find the native races compassing a wide maritime field only in the Arctic, where the fragmentary character of the continent breaks up the ocean into Hudson's Bay, Davis Strait, Baffin Bay, Gulf of Boothia. Melville Sound and Bering Sea, and in the American Mediterranean of the Caribbean Sea and Gulf of Mexico. The excellent seamanship developed in the archipelagos of southern Alaska and Chile remained abortive for maritime expansion, despite a paucity of local resources and the spur of hunger, owing to the lack of a marginal sea, but in the Caribbean basin, the Arawaks and later the Caribs spread from the southern mainland as far as Cuba. See Math page 101 enclosed or marginal seas were historically the most important sections of the ocean prior to 1492. Apart from the widening of the maritime horizon which they give to their bordering people, each has the further advantage of constituting an area of closed vicinal grouping and constant interchange of cultural achievements, by which the civilization of the whole basin tends to become elevated and unified. This unification frequently extends to a race also owing to the rapidity of maritime expansion and the tendency to ethnic amalgamation characteristic of all coast regions, we recognize an area of Mediterranean civilization from the Isthmus of Suez to the sacred promontory of Portugal, and in this area a long-headed, prenat mediterranean race, clearly unified as two-stock, despite local differentiations of culture, languages and nations in the various islands, peninsulas and other segregated coastal regions of the sea. The basin appears therefore as an historical whole, for in it a certain group of peoples concentrated their common efforts, which crossed and criss-crossed from shore to shore. Phoenicia's trade ranged westward to the outer coasts of Spain, and later Barcelona's maritime enterprises reached east to the Levant. Greece's commercial and colonial relations embraced the Crimea and the mouth of the Rhône, and Genoa's extended east to the Crimea again. The Saracens, on reaching the Mediterranean edge of the Arabian Peninsula, swept the southern coasts and islands, swung up the western rim of the basin to the foot of the Pyrenees, and taught the sluggish Spaniards the art of irrigation practiced on the garden slopes of Yemen. The ships of the Crusaders from Venice, Genoa and Marseille anchored in the ports of Mohammedanized Syria, brought the symbol of the cross back to its birthplace in Jerusalem, but carried away with them countless suggestions from the finished industries of the East. Here was give and take. Expansion and Counter Expansion conquest and expulsion, all together making up a great sum of reciprocal relations embracing the whole basin. The outcome of that close geographical connection which every sharply defined sea establishes between the coasts which it washes, the same thing has come to pass in the North Sea, originally Celtic on its western or British side, as opposed to its eastern or Germanic coast. It has been wholly tutenized on that flank also from the Strait of Dover to the Firth of Tay and sprinkled with Scandinavian settlers from the Firth of Tay northward to Caithness, the 11th century saw this ethnic unification achieved, and the end of the Middle Ages witnessed the diffusion of the elements of a common civilization through the agency of commerce from Bruges to Bergen. The Baltic, originally Teutonic only on its northern and western shores, has in historical times become almost wholly Teutonic, including even the seaboard of Finland and much of the coast provinces of Russia. Unification of civilization attended this unification of race. In its period of greatest historical significance from the 12th to the 17th century, the Baltic played the role of a northern Mediterranean. The countless shuttles of the Hans ships wove a web of commercial intercourse between its remotest shores. North Novgorod and Abo were in constant communication with Lubeck and Stralsut, and Wisby. On the island of Gotland at the great crossroads of the Baltic, had the focal significance of the Piraeus in ancient Aegean trade. If we turn to Asia, we find that even the unfavorable Arctic location of Bering Sea has been enabled to rob it entirely of historical significance. This is the one spot where a Native American race has transplanted itself by its natural expansion to Asiatic shores. The circular rim and island-dotted surface have guided Eskimo emigrants to the coast of the Chukchian Peninsula, where they have become partly assimilated in dress and language to the local Chukchis. The same conditions also facilitated the passage of a few Chukchis across Bering Strait to the Alaskan side, at Pakorpeka on East Cape and on Dairond Island, situated in the narrowest part of Bering Strait, are the great intercontinental markets of the polar tribes. Here American furs have for many decades been exchanged for the reindeer skins of northern Siberia and Russian goods from faraway Moscow. Only the enclosed character of the sea, reported by the Danish explorer is Bering, Tempted the land-bred Russians, who reached the northeastern coast of Siberia at the middle of the 18th century, to launch their leaky boats of unseasoned timber, push across to the American continent, and make this whole bearing basin a Russian sea, just as a few decades before, when land exploration of Kamchatka had revealed the enclosed character of the Sea of Okhotsk, the Russian pioneers took a straight course across the water to their Pacific outpost of Petropavlovsk near the southern end of the peninsula but even before the coming of the Slavs to its shores, the Sea of Okhotsk seems to have been an area of native commercial and ethnic intercourse from the Amur River in Siberia in a half-circle to the east, through Sakhalim, Yezo, the Kuril Islands and southern Kamchatka, noticeably where the rim of the basin presented the scantiest supply of land and where, therefore, its meager resources had to be eked out by fisheries and trade on the sea. On the southwest margin of Asia, the Red Sea, despite its desert shores, has maintained the influence of its intercontinental location and linked the neighboring elements of Africa and Asia. Identity of climatic conditions on both sides of this long rift valley has facilitated ethnic exchanges, and made it the center of what Ratzel calls the Red Sea Group of Peoples, related in race and culture. The great ethnic solvent here has been Semitic. Under the spur of Islam, the Arabs by 1514 had made the Red Sea an Arabian and Mohammedan Sea. They had their towns or trading stations at Zila on the African side of the Strait of Bab el-Mandeb, at Dalakway, the port of Abyssinia, at Massawa, Swakim, and other towns, so that this coast too was called Arabia Felix. The scenal location about an enclosed basin produces more rapidly a unification of race and culture, when some ethnic relationship and affinity already exists among the peoples inhabiting its shores, as in the ancient and medieval Mediterranean. So in the Yellow Sea of Asia, the working of this principle is apparent. The presence along its coasts of divergent but kindred peoples like the Chinese, Koreans and Japanese, allowed these to be easily assimilated to a Yellow Sea race and to absorb quickly any later infusion, like that of the Tatars and Manchus. China, by reason of its larger area, long-drawn coast, massive population, and early civilization, was the dominant factor in this basin. Korea and Japan were its culture colonies a fact that justifies the phrase calling China the Rome of the Far East. Historical Japan began on the island of Kyushu, facing the Yellow Sea. Like Korea, it derived its writing, its fantastic medical notions, its industrial methods, some features of its government administration, its Buddhism and its religion of Confucius from the people about the lower Hoangho. Three centuries ago Japan had its colony on Korean soil at Fusan. The Calais of the East. For purposes of piracy and smuggling Japanese penetrated far up the rivers of China. Korea has kept in touch with China by on active trade and diplomatic relations through the centuries. But today China is going to school to Japan. Since Japan renounced her policy of seclusion in 1868 along with her antiquated form of government. And since Korea has been forced out of her hermit life. The potency of the senal location around this enclosed sea has been suddenly restored. The enforced opening of the treaty ports of Japan, Korea and China simply prepared the way for this basin to reassert its power to unite, and to unite now more closely and effectively than ever before. Under the law of increasing territorial areas, the stimulus was first communicated to the basin from without, from the trading nations of the Occident and that newborn Orient rising from the sea on the California shores. Japan has responded most promptly and most actively to these overseas stimuli just as England has, of all Europe, felt most strongly the reflex influences from transatlantic lands. The awakening of this basin has started, therefore, from its seaward rim, its star has risen in the east. It is in the small countries of the world that such stars rise. The compressed energies of Japan, stirred by overseas contact and an improved government at home, have overleaked the old barriers and are following the lines of slight resistance which this land-bound sea affords. Helped by the bonds of geographical conditions and of race, she has begun to convert China and Korea into her culture colonies. The beyond-looking world feels that the ultimate welfare of China and Korea can be best nurtured by Japan, which will thus pay its old debt to the Middle Kingdom, despite the fact that China's history has always had a decidedly inland character, that its political expansion has been landward, that it has practiced most extensively and successively internal colonization and that its policy of exclusion has tended to deaden its outlook toward the Pacific. Nevertheless, China's direct intercourse with the West and its westward-directed influence had never, in point of significance, been comparable with that toward the East and South. Here a succession of marginal seas offered easy water paths, dotted with way stations, to their outermost rim in Japan, the Philippines and remote Australia, about the South China Sea, the Gulf of Siam, the Sulu, Celebes, and Java Seas. The coastal regions of the outlying islands have for centuries received Chinese goods and culture, and a blend of that obstinately assertive Chinese blood. The strength of these influences has decreased with every increase of distance from the indented coasts and teeming, seafaring population of South China, and with every decrease in race affinity, they have left only faint traces on the alien shores of faraway Australia. The divergent ethnic stock of the widespread Malay world has been little susceptible to these influences, which are therefore weak in the remoter islands, but clearly discernible on the coasts of the Philippines, Borneo, the nearer Sunda Islands, and the peninsula of Malacca, where the Chinese have had trading colonies for centuries, but in the eastern half of farther India, which is grouped with China by land as well as by sea, and whose race stock is largely if not purely Mongolian, these influences are very marked, so that the whole continental rim of the South China Sea, from Formosa to the Isthmus of Malacca, is strongly assimilated in race and culture. Tonking, exposed to those modifying influences which characterize all land frontiers, as well as to coastwise intercourse, is in its people and civilization merely a transcript of China. The coast districts and islands of Annam are occupied by Chinese as far as the hills of Cambodia and the name of Cochin China points to the origin of its predominant population. One-sixth of the inhabitants of Siam are Chinese, some of whom have filtered through the northern border. Bangkok, the capital, has a large Chinese quarter. The whole economic life and no small part of the intellectual life of the eastern face of farther India south to Singapore is centered in the activity of the Chinese. The historical significance of an enclosed sea basin depends upon its zonal location and its position in relation to the surrounding lands. We observe a steady decrease of historical importance from south to north through the connected series of the Yellow, Japan, Okhotsk, Bering Seas, and the Arctic Basin, miscalled Ocean. The far northern location of the Baltic, with its long winters of ice-bound ports and its glaciated lands, retarded its inclusion in the field of history, curtailed its important historical period and reduced the intensity of its historical life. Despite the brave, eager activity of the Hanseatic League, the Mediterranean had the advantage, not only of a more favorable zomal situation, but of a location at the meeting place of three continents and on the line of maritime traffic across the eastern hemisphere from the Atlantic to the Pacific. These advantages it shares in some degree with the Indian Ocean, which, as Ratzel justly argues, is not a true ocean, at best only half an ocean. North of the equator, where it is narrowed and enclosed like an inland sea, it loses the hydrospheric and atmospheric characteristics of a genuine ocean. Currents and winds are disorganized by the close hugging lands. Here the steady northeast trade wind is replaced by the alternating air currents of the northeast and southwest monsoons, which at a very early date enabled merchant vessels to break away from their previous slow, coastwise path and to strike a straight course on their voyage between Arabia or the east coast of Africa and India. Moreover, this northern half of the Indian Ocean looks like a larger Mediterranean with its southern coast removed. It has the same east and west series of peninsulas harboring differentiated nationalities, the same northward-running recesses, but all on a larger scale. It has linked together the history of Asia and Africa, and by the Red Sea and Persian Gulf. It has drawn Europe and the Mediterranean into its sphere of influence. At the western corner of the Indian Ocean a Semitic people, the Arabs of Oman and Yemen, here first developed brilliant maritime activity, like their Phoenician kinsmen of the Lebanon seaboard. Similar geographic conditions in their homelands and a nearly similar intercontinental location combined to make them the middlemen of three continents, just as the Phoenicians, by way of the Mediterranean reached and roused slumberous North Africa into historical activity and became the medium for the distribution of Egypt's culture. So these Semites of the Arabian shores knocked at the long-closed doors of East Africa facing on the Indian basin, and drew this region into the history of Southern Asia. Thus the Africa of the enclosed seas was awakened to some measure of historical life, while the Africa of the wide Atlantic slept on. From the dawn of history the Northern Indian Ocean was a thoroughfare. Alexander the Great's rediscovery of the old sea route to the Orient sounds like a modern event in relation to the Grey Ages behind it. Along this thoroughfare Indian colonists, traders, and priests carried the elements of Indian civilization to the easternmost Sunda Isles, and oriental wares. Sciences and religions moved westward to the margin of Europe and Africa. The Indian Ocean produced a civilization of its own, with which it colored a vast semicircle of land reaching from Java to Abyssinia, and more faintly, Owing to the wider divergence of race, the further stretch from Abyssinia to Mozambique, thus the northern Indian Ocean, owing to its form, its location in the angle between Asia and Africa and the latitude where, round the whole earth, the zone of greatest historical density begins, and especially its location just southeast of the Mediterranean as the eastern extension of that maritime track of ancient and modern times between Europe and China, has been involved in a long series of historical events, From the historical standpoint, prior to 1492 it takes a far higher place than the Atlantic and Pacific, owing to its nature as an enclosed sea. But like all such basins, this northern Indian Ocean attained its zenith of historical importance in early times. In the 16th century it suffered a partial eclipse, which passade only with the opening of the Suez Canal. During this interval, however, the Portuguese Dutch and English had rounded the Cape of Good Hope and entered this basin on its open or oceanic side, by their trading stations, which soon traced the outlines of its coasts from Sofala in South Africa around to Java, they made the ocean an alcove of the Atlantic, and embodied its events in the Atlantic period of history, it is this open or oceanic side which differentiates the Indian Ocean physically, and therefore historically, from a genuine enclosed sea. The limitation of every enclosed or marginal sea lies in its small area and in the relatively restricted circle of its bordering lands. Only small peninsulas and islands can break its surface, and short stretches of coast combine to form its shores. It affords, therefore, only limited territories as goals for expansion, restricted resources and populations to furnish the supply and demand of trade what lands could the Mediterranean present to the colonial outlook of the Greeks comparable to the North America of the expanding English or the Brazil of the Portuguese, yet the Mediterranean as a colonial field had great advantages in point of size over the Baltic, which is only one-sixth as large to .509.500 and 431.000 square kilometers respectively, and especially over the Red Sea and Persian Gulf whose effective areas were greatly reduced by the aridity of their surrounding lands, but the precocious development and early cessation of growth marking all Mediterranean national life have given to this basin a variegated history, and in every period and every geographical region of it, from ancient Phoenicia to modern Spain and Italy, the early exhaustion of resources and dwarfing of political ideals which characterize most small areas become increasingly conspicuous. The History of Sweden, Denmark And the Hans Towns in the Baltic tells the same story. The street.